Well, I am really excited to get into the book of Samuel um, this year, and uh, we'll be looking at First and Second Samuel, uh, different times and some smaller chunks and bigger chunks. But uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, the book of First and Second Samuel, it's really called the book of Samuel. Includes First and Second Samuel, tells the story of Samuel, uh, the the prophet that was raised up and the priest that was raised up by God. Um, to lead his people out of the period of the judges into the the period of the monarchy in Israel, Saul becoming the first king, followed by the life of David. This is a rich portion of Scripture. It has many, many lessons in it for us today, as the Scriptures teach us in 1 Corinthians 10, to pay attention to the the words in the Old Testament, the the stories in the Old Testament, so that we we can learn how we are to live and how we are not to live. But also, there are many, many portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're going to see through the book of Samuel. And so I'm excited. I hope you are as well. This morning, uh, we're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, um, looking at the story of a woman weeping in Shiloh. This is how the book of Samuel begins. In fact, the, the very last thing that you read before opening the book of 1 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is the last verse of the book of Judges which says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king in Israel. They made up their own morality. They decided for themselves what was right. However, the situation is a little more complex than that. See, while it's true that Israel had no human king, they did have a king. A divine king, the Lord, Yahweh. The fundamental problem for Israel, as we'll see throughout the book of First and Second Samuel, is not that they didn't have a king, but that they refused to acknowledge and obey the king that they did have. The real problem was not the lack of a human king. The real problem was the failure to follow God as their king. He was not being acknowledged. His ways were not being followed. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Samuel is the story of Israel seeking a human leader. The Lord had chosen Abraham from among the nations back in Genesis chapter 12 and given him a covenant promise that included three things, remember? A land, a people, and a blessing. Centuries later, God had multiplied Abraham's offspring such that they filled the land of Egypt. And they were led out of Egyptian slavery through Moses. And then God, through Joshua, enabled the people of Israel to defeat the Canaanites and occupy the land that he had promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. And after Joshua's death, there came the dark days of the judges. The book of Samuel begins in these dark days and records the transition to Israel's new system of government in which they're ruled by kings. Four times at the close of Judges, we are told that in those days, Israel had no king. And then 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, opens up with this phrase. There was a certain man. The only other time the phrase a certain man is used in the opening is to the story of Samson in Judges 13. 
in many ways, the story that's told in First and Second Samuel is the solution to this problem. The book of Samuel starts with no king and ends with a king. But as the book opens, we might expect to hear the story of the king. There's a certain man. He comes into the, the, the land of Israel and he rules them with great strength and might. And delivers them from the dark days of the judges in which they lived. And restores true worship to the people of Israel. Is that what we read? No. It's the way all of God's stories begin. Insignificant. To us. Very significant to him. As the book opens we might expect. This great triumphal entry of this strong king. But what we find is a very domestic story about a woman's private grief in her inability to conceive a child. What we might expect is a king named Elkanah ascending the throne of Israel. But what we find is a woman named Hannah weeping in Shiloh that she can't have a baby. So we're going to see Hannah's story play out in these first couple of chapters of first Samuel because if you've been paying attention as you read the Bible up to first Samuel God often has a woman in distress right before he's getting ready to do something really significant and that doesn't change here in first Samuel we're going to see four things about Hannah's life here Hannah's plight first of all then we're going to look at Hannah's prayer Hannah's peace and Hannah's praise first of all Hannah's plight. Let's read the first two verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Aphrathite. Now, I know those names aren't significant to us, but the point is that when we hear a succession of names like that, that would trigger in the people of Israel royalty. This, this, this man has generations behind him, and, and this, is a, this, is, this, is a, this is an important person who's coming. But it's not for the reasons that the readers would expect. Because look at verse 2. He had two wives. That's not a good start for a great king. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Pinnah. Or Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, had, but Hannah had no children. That's the opening of the book. We begin our story with a man named Elkanah who has two wives, one named Hannah, one named Peninnah. Not a good way to start a story of a king. Polygamy, while a reality in the Bible, is a sin against God's design and never yields positive relational results, as we'll see in this very chapter. We're told that Penina has children and Hannah doesn't. And it appears that Hannah is Elkanah's first love, or his first wife, since she's listed first, and because Elkanah says later in verse 5 that she's his first love. The name Hannah, as some of you may know, means favored one. But she appears... Quite the opposite. She appears in a state of disfavor, a state of barrenness, a sign of disgrace for any woman 
in the people of Israel. No woman, especially Hannah, would ever consider herself favored if she couldn't even have a child. To make matters worse, Penina's name means fruitful. And she was definitely living up to her name. What has been true for her, and that is having fruitfulness and bearing children, was not the case for Hannah. Penina was fruitful, but Hannah was not favored. In a culture in which a woman's significance was measured by her ability to have children, she was completely barren. And this wasn't the deepest part of her plight, just her barrenness. If that weren't enough distress in and of itself, we read in verses 3 to 5 the various responses that people had to her plight. We're told in verse 5 clearly the reason that she was barren. Look at verse 5. You'll see God's, the Holy Spirit's divine interpretation of the whole narrative. But Hannah, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. This was not Hannah's fault. This was not Hannah's doing. This was the Lord's doing. However, this reality of barrenness prompts different responses from Elkanah, her husband, from Penina, his wife, and from Hannah herself. So look at these three responses with me. First of all, we'll read Elkanah's response to Hannah's plight of barrenness in verses 3 to 5. Now this man used to go up, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So look at Elkanah's response. Elkanah's fair. He's evidently presented as a man who is committed, at least to the ritual sacrifices of the people of Israel. And he gives one portion to one person. For Penina, because she has many sons and many daughters, he gives many portions. And Hannah receives what we hear is a double portion. But when she's given these portions, and the fact that these portions are divvied out every year as they make this journey to Shiloh to sacrifice to the Lord, Hannah's reminded every year of her barren state by her husband. Every year when they travel to Shiloh to worship the Lord, it's another vivid picture, a visual reminder of her status as one who has been disfavored. While Elkanah is likely just trying to do what is just and right and communicate to Hannah that he does in fact love her and he is compassionate toward her, it doesn't change the fact that the reality of her barrenness is still there. Look at Penina's response in verses 6 and 7. And her rival, interesting use of a word there, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. While Elkanah sought to show her pity, perhaps frustrated with Elkanah's favoritism, Penina provokes Hannah so much so 
that he's, she's called Hannah's rival. How was Hannah being provoked? Dick Lucas, a pastor and commentator, helps us imagine how the scenario might have played out between Penina and one of her children while Hannah was listening on while they went up to Shiloh. Listen into this conversation. Penina says, Now do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you. It's hard to keep track sometimes. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What'd you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, Miss Hannah, yes. Oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Mommy, doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants them very much. Don't you wish you had children, Hannah? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have children, Mommy? Oh, he certainly does, and he's tried so hard, but Miss Hannah, she just keeps disappointing him. She just isn't able to have children. Why not, Mommy? Well, because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah, Mommy? Well, I don't know. What do you think, children? Miss Hannah, do you think you'll ever have children? Oh, Hannah. Hannah, by the way, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? We're having another baby. Is it a boy or a girl, Mommy? Yay! Year after year, this went on. Like Hannah, we can find ourselves surrounded by Peninas that tell us that we'll never be valuable unless we do or achieve certain things. High quality education, large house, husband who cares, successful career, children. And we're often surrounded by Elkanahs who tell us to find fulfillment, meaning, significance, where? Look at what Elkanah says here in verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? See, Penina can chastise us with the ways we failed. And Elkanah can tell us, well, you know what? You need to give up all that stuff. Just find fulfillment in relationships and romance and marriage. This is the consistent message we receive all day long from our culture. Find fulfillment in what you can deliver and what you can achieve and what you can do. Otherwise, you're worthless. What you can contribute, what you can produce. Or find your significance in who you're with. And that's all we got on a horizontal level. And what does it produce? Weeping. Our culture will tell us. Produce. Find somebody to love. It's all you need. Really? No amount of children. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. So while Elkanah pitied Hannah and Penina provoked Hannah, Hannah responded in a completely different way to her plight. She had a godly response. She didn't look first horizontally to how she could somehow fix the situation or remedy, draw some comfort horizontally. She went vertical. She went to the God whom she knew was her only hope. 
She prayed. She prayed. And that's what we're going to see secondly. We've seen Hannah's plight. Now let's look at Hannah's prayer. Verse 9 marks the turning point in Hannah's story. Look at the very beginning of verse 9 of chapter 1. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Girl, wash your face. She got up and she made a choice. She didn't make a choice to go to therapy. Not that therapy is a bad thing. I'm just using it as an illustration. To go to therapy or marriage counseling to work on her marriage with Elkanah so that she could really get a grasp of how much he loves her and how much she needs to love him. And they didn't go to wives, couples counseling to try to work out their jealousy issues between each other. No, Hannah rose and went to God. She got up and she responded to her closed womb by running to the God who could open it. Let's read verses 9 to 16. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips and her voice were not, was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. By the way, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a good sign of health in the people of Israel right now when your priest can't tell whether a woman is drunk or praying. Just, to, just throwing that in. And we'll see Eli's got deeper problems than that. But anyway. Verse 14, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. She's in deep anguish. She's weeping bitterly. She's under affliction and misery. She's deeply troubled. These are the words that come out about Hannah's prayer. She is pouring out her soul to God. When I read these words, I think to myself, what are the marks of real prayer? Right words, right place, right time. What about a right heart? Hannah doesn't have the right words. She doesn't have the right place. She doesn't have the right time. But in the midst of her extended anguish, she runs to God and she collapses in his presence. Maybe you're coming into this new year and you're experiencing suffering and pain or you're fearful of experiencing suffering and pain in the new year and it's just multiplied by how others respond all around you and you feel shut up and shut out 
I'll tell you what, you're in a really good place to pray well. Maybe you find that when you try to pray that your mind just runs all over the place and you find it hard to concentrate. That is a great condition for good praying. God doesn't need your sequential thoughts. God doesn't need your ability to craft the right words. He wants your anguish. He wants your distress. He wants your confusion. He wants your alienation. He wants your great bitterness. He wants your deep trouble. He wants your vexation. He wants your misery. He wants you to pour out your soul to him is what he wants. Prayer is not a technique to master. It is a child crying out to the father for help. That is all prayer is. How many three-year-olds do you know who ask for what they need in a quiet and contemplative way? No, they insist, they shout, they clamor, they persist, they nag, they cry. Real prayer happens where your deep sense of need is coupled with a deep sense of God's ability to meet that need. That's all real prayer is. Here you have a barren woman in Shiloh addressing the Lord of hosts, the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of all universes, and she assumes that her broken heart as an obscure woman in some hill country of Ephraim matters to him. And it does, colossally. Her broken heart is key to God's redemptive story. She would be absolutely right that her broken heart matters to God more than all the universes in all the worlds. In her bitterness of soul, through her many tears, with much grief and much despair, she pours out her soul to God, and the Lord allows her to do just that and inspires it and puts it in the book of Samuel for all of us to read. Our Lord can handle our tears. It doesn't make him nervous. It doesn't make him uneasy. If you unload your burden at his feet, he's glad to take it on his capable shoulders. You're not telling him anything he doesn't know or hasn't heard before. Every prayer is like the prayer of Hannah. Powerless creatures confessing their power, powerlessness by turning to the Lord and giver of all life and all good to do something out of our distress. At heart, all prayer is just a plea to open the womb Lord, take our impossible situation and with your intervention, make it possible. That's all it is. Every prayer is a prayer for God to open the womb, either spiritually or really. Lord, make a way where there is no way. A couple of side details about Hannah's prayer may be an encouragement to you. It's noted in verse 9, almost as an incidental detail, that Eli is sitting at the entrance, literally beside the doorpost of the temple. Now, you may think, wait, this is, the temple hadn't been built yet, right? That gets, that gets built later under Solomon, right? But temple here is just being referred to the meeting place where God was and that God was meeting with his people. And so Shiloh was one of those places. So it's just called a temple. It's not referring to the physical temple that would later be built. But while this detail about Eli sitting or standing or beside the doorpost uh, uh, at, the, at, the, at the entrance of the temple, it can seem unimportant or incidental. We need to remember that Sarah stood in the doorway when the angel told Abraham that they were going to have a son in Genesis 18.1. And this would have triggered the, wait, God told Abraham that he was going to have a son when Sarah was at the entrance of the doorway. 
Additionally, Israel passed through a blood-stained doorway at the Passover to spare their own firstborn sons, right, in the Passover, which led to their new birth out of slavery into freedom. So in both of these incidents, the doorway is associated with birth. And as we'll soon see, Hannah's son would soon stand where? The same door as the gatekeeper of Israel, just as Hannah had vowed. Or that's, we're not there yet. We're also told in verse 11 that Hannah would not allow a razor to touch the head of her son, essentially taking the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. Now, Nazarites were similar to priests in the Old Testament. However, the difference was that Nazarites typically treated all of life as holy and not just the actions that were done in connection to the priesthood. So they, they viewed every life. Think of, think of it almost like as the Old Testament form of the monastery, just this devoted, monkish kind of life. There are three prominent Nazarites in the Bible, Samson, John the Baptist, and as we'll see, Hannah's son, Samuel, each of them born to a barren woman. And just as Samuel was set apart to prepare the people for the reign of King David, so John the Baptist was set apart to prepare the people for the reign of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and both were Nazarites. It's a significant point that she vows in this way. So that's Hannah's prayer. We've seen Hannah's plight, Hannah's prayer. Let's turn thirdly to Hannah's peace. Hannah's peace. What's the result of Hannah's praying? Look at verse 17. Then Eli answered. So she's prayed in great distress in his presence at the temple in Shiloh. Verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant Find favor in your eyes. In other words, let me finally live up to my name. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's Hannah's peace. So Eli tells her to go in peace. She pleads for God's favor as the favored one. And she went her way, ate, was no longer sad. Her face was no longer downcast. Now, this is really striking. Why? Nothing has changed circumstantially for her. She has prayed, and she's now happy to leave the results to God. And those results are make her happy, whatever they are. Now, she has some encouragement, definitely, from Eli. Eli tells her, the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. But that is not a definite. That is Eli's benediction over her prayer. That is Eli saying, may the Lord do for you what you have asked of him. Which is a great affirmation from a spiritual leader. Doesn't have any control over the outcome. But Hannah just says, okay, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went, goes her way and she's happy. Now, we might expect the order to be different. It would go something like this. Hannah prays, she gets pregnant, and she's joyful, and all the problems of her life disappear. But that's not what happens. We find this one. Hannah prays, she's joyful, she gets pregnant. She rejoiced 
before she ever conceived. Hannah's joy is not dependent on obtaining a son. It's dependent upon obtaining the ear of God. Is that where your joy is? Is your joy in the affirmative outcomes of your prayers to God? Or is your joy in prayer to God? In communion with your Father. Is that where your joy is? Or is it only in the goodies he dispenses from his throne? Now we should take great delight and joy in those goodies. Those are good. Those are gifts. Those are to be received with thanksgiving. Those are for the glory of his name. But that's not ultimately where our hope lies and our joy lies. It's found in the God of our salvation. Hannah found joy in God, the source of all joy. Faith means rejoicing in God when our dreams are still unfulfilled and resting on God when life is still falling apart around us. And isn't this an encouragement to you that on the back end of pouring out your soul to God, there is joy? There is joy on the back end. That is not a wasted pursuit. When we divulge our distress to the Lord and pour out our hearts to God, He meets us on the back end with His joy. Hannah still prays for a son, but she's praying in an entirely different way. She says, as it were, God, I've come to the temple today and I'm asking you to give me a son. But I'm not asking you to give me a son to make up for some deficiency in my life. I've prayed that way before. It's always been for me. But now I'm asking for a son for your sake. You are my sufficiency. You are my treasure. And if you give me a son, he will belong solely to you. Remember verse 11? She says, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Should this not be the desire of all of us as parents and grandparents to see our children given over wholly to the Lord? I'm not talking about serving in the Old Testament priesthood as if the thing still existed. But I'm talking about a desire that if the Lord gives us and has given us children, we give them over to him for his purposes and not ours. This can be hard for us as parents. We have dreams, we have desires, we have plans, and God has others. So we have to hold our children with open hands and let the Lord do with them what he will. I'm reminded of a letter that Jim Elliott wrote to his parents when he was getting prepared to leave for South America to become a missionary. Jim was planning to go, and he knew the cost that came with that, the cost especially to his own parents. And so he wrote a letter to them, and this is what he said. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not then if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full 
of but arrows. And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly. All of them straight at the enemy's hosts. And then he quotes from a hymn. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious. And all that you spend us, Jesus will repay. That's how he wrote to his parents. Reminding them that the cost they are paying is worth it. We must not overlook, dear ones, the significance of the vow Hannah made in verse 11. Look at verses 21 to 28 where the essence of that vow is being described. Starting verse 19. They arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she had, she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained, nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. They brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Don't overlook the significance and the costliness of this. This is huge. Do you see what we read? Just just moms, dads, people of all ages. You can enter into this. This is rich with motherly language and affection. Just notice. Hannah didn't go right away with Elkanah. Verse 22. As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him. Verse 23 at the end. So the woman remained and nursed her son, nursed her son, her son, until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, it continues, and we read at verse 24 at the end, and the child was young. This is a mother with a new child freshly weaned and he is she is consecrating him as promised in her vow to the lord for his entire life now it means that she is giving up all claims to her son in order to let him live in the temple and serve god when hannah took that nazarite vow for her son she's basically moving him out of her house to go live in god's house She's renouncing everything that would have been valuable about having a son in the first place. She's living as though she never had a son. Practically speaking, she's, son's not with her, not there. 
the same stigma still applies. Samuel would not grow up in her house. He would not be an emotional support for her. He would not be around to take care of her in her old age. She, she would have no land inheritance. Hannah prayed for a son and laid aside every benefit a son could have given her. And it was at that point that God gave her a son. What's, our, what's, our, what's the lesson from that? God loves to give us what we want when we've reached a place where the thing we are requesting from him won't turn into an idol when he gives it to us. Let me say that again. That needs to sit with us, all of us. It needs to sit with me a while. God loves to give us what we want when we've reached a place where the thing we are requesting from him won't turn into an idol when he gives it to us. It won't become gravel in our mouths. Why do we want what we want from God? Are we asking for his sake or for ours? Is it mainly about his will or our wants? And they can be they can be in line with each other. It's not necessarily opposed to each other, those things. Is it about his ple- purposes or our pleasures fundamentally? Is it about his kingdom or our comforts? Perhaps the reason we do not have is because we have not asked. Or perhaps the reason we do not have is because, as James says, we've asked wrongly that we can spend it on our pleasures. And God knows that if he granted us our request, all it would do is drive us further from him. And it is his mercy that tells us no or not now. Israel was searching for a king for the same reason Hannah had been searching for a son. Prosperity, stability, security. Israel sought them in a king. Hannah sought them in a son. No different. To Hannah, God says, these things that you're looking for, this prosperity, this stability, this security, it's not found in sons. To Israel, God says, This prosperity, this stability, this security you're looking for, it's not found in kings. To both Hannah and to the people of Israel, he says, prosperity, security, stability you're seeking is found in me. It's found in me. As C.S. Lewis said, when we live for heaven, we get earth thrown in. When we live for earth, we get neither. Fourthly, Hannah's praise. That's Hannah's peace. Derived from the Lord, apart from her circumstances, through prayer. But that doesn't mean the story doesn't have a beautiful outcome. Hannah's praise. And I'm not going to reread the passage. We read it. Jason read it for us at the beginning. Hannah, First uh, Samuel 2, 1 to 11, is a rich prayer of song of praise for the birth of Samuel and the deliverance of Samuel to the house of the Lord. So since we read this section, I won't reread it now. But Hannah's song of praise is a picture of, not just of Hannah's own story, but of Israel's story up to this point. And really, it's a story, It's each of our stories. We can see our story in Hannah's story. Like Hannah, we're, we may not have been, especially the males among us, we have not been physically barren or fruitless, but we have been spiritually barren and fruitless. And we've tasted the bitter fruit of a life lived for self. But the movement of this song of praise is from barrenness to fruitfulness as God brings life where there is no life. 
Her song is full of reversals. She's gone from downcast to joyful. She was once provoked by her enemy, and now she has come to a place of boasting over her enemy. God loves to use our total inability as his starting point. His helpfulness meets us in our hopelessness. It is in our utter incapacity to do anything about everything that God delights to do something with nothing. Say that again. It is in our utter incapacity to to do anything about everything that God delights to do something with nothing. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without gimmicks, then he loves to stretch out his heavenly hand and work on our behalf. In verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2, Hannah lists several of these reversals that move beyond her personal experience into the experience of God's people as a whole. She's not just thinking about herself. She hasn't been thinking about herself since she prayed that prayer and made that vow. It's been all about how this son that you give me can advance your redemptive purposes in Israel. One reason that Hannah can see her personal experience as a picture of God's purposes is because her experience is not new. She's not the first barren woman in the Bible to receive a child. Barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the Bible. And Hannah knows this. Whether that be the promised seed of Isaac or the father of Israel, Jacob, or savior figures like Joseph and Samson or the forerunner of the great king, John the Baptist. Now, she didn't know that one. But it is frequently in the context of barrenness that God writes new chapters in his global redemptive story. All the way through the Bible, God gives children to the childless. It's an indication that salvation will be accomplished only by his power and grace. Hannah's story is told because it's part of a larger story that God is telling. The story of God's provision for a savior for us. Like Hannah, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings a song in response to her conception. And if you read over the past couple of weeks, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, you're going to see a deliberate echo of 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 11 in Mary's words. Both rejoice in miraculous provision for them, but see it as an echo of what God will do for his people And they both give up their children to the service of God. A sword will pierce through your own soul too, Mary. Hannah sings in verses 6 to 8 that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. He makes the poor rich. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he makes them inherit a throne of honor. Boy, if that ain't the Old Testament gospel, I don't know what is. Jesus takes those, so many of us, who were dead in sin, gives us new life in him through his death. And he takes those who were burdened by their own guilt and lifts them up to sit with him on a seat of honor and glory. He brings down in judgment those who are proudly in defiance of God and he exalts those who humbly admit their need for him. There are two types of people in the world. Those who exalt themselves by defying God and ignoring him and those who humble themselves before him and receive receive his grace. Where are you, friend, this morning? Where are you? If you humble yourself before the Lord like Hannah, he will exalt you. 
That's your future. How do we know? Because Jesus already paved the way. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, embraced the form of a servant and the death of the cross. He was brought down to the grave, humbled and humiliated that we might be raised with him and seated among princes on thrones of honor. Perhaps you are here this morning and, and you feel just completely barren. But if you're a child of God, I want you to see in Hannah's story that your barrenness does not mean God forsakenness. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be. Perhaps you feel like God has cast you aside, but I want to remind you that God loves the people that the world has cast away. Cry out to God in your distress, and you'll find him to be an ever-present help in your time of need. Because, in conclusion, the deliverance of Hannah points us to the deliverance that's possible for us in Jesus Christ. Just as Hannah was distressed, so are we in great distress because of our sin and its effects. Just as Hannah was oppressed by her rival, so we are oppressed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just as God provided a son for Hannah, so God has provided a son for us to deliver us from our spiritual barrenness. A woman weeping in Shiloh provided a vital link in advancing God's kingdom purposes. A woman weeping in Shiloh was a portrait and a picture of what God was going to do in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not less true in the life of Jesus and it will not be less true in our lives as well. So in our various plights, let's pray. Let's refuse to be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. In doing such, we know that the peace of God that's promised that passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which will put us in a posture of praise, rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in who He is, even when life is hard. Because even when life is hard, He's good. Really, really good. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this opening of the book of Samuel. We are so thankful for the portrait of Your grace and power that is at work here. Lord, thank You that You're that the, your word doesn't whitewash our lives. It's a picture of the distress and difficulty it is of living in a fallen world. Hard marriages, hard circumstances, unmet longings, unfulfilled dreams, disappointment, 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 breakthrough. Lord, may this year bring breakthroughs. By your grace, as we humble ourselves in desperate dependence on you, crying out to you in prayer, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You've shown it to us by raising your son from the dead and by saving us through his vicarious sacrifice, his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection. Lord, thank you that you write good stories out of messy situations. You do your best work here. And so, Lord, may we not despair. May we see hope even in a woman weeping in Shiloh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.